0: everybody to class number two hope you get all settled i hope we're running okay everybody's welcome to get themselves a soup get yourself settled and we look forward to seeing more people in person god willing as everybody gets healthy and well okay last week well welcome everybody to lesson number two. Today's lesson is going to be about the, as we who needs a redemption? Last week we experienced a presentation that was a little um, pretty unbelievable eye-opener into seeing how the world is changing for the better in front of us at an increasing pace, showing our statistics we've shown and seen how um, the assessment of the world can be very optimistic. And unfortunately, when we look things through a certain negative prism, we look through dark classes, we see dark things. But if we look at the facts, the facts speak for themselves. And we see how poverty, crime, nay, you name it, of the materialistic issues that are happening in the world, it's on an upstep that things are getting better, which we're following the biblical prophecies that we've mentioned and we've spoken about. Many times in our JLI classes, we always talk about the when, the how, and if. Of Judaism. Today we're going to actually focus on something very different, the why. When we talk about the redemption, the redemption is not just about world peace. It's not just about universal prosperity, curing diseases. In addition to all the different prophecies that are mentioned in the Torah, most of the prophecies that we talk about are not necessarily only of physical things. But there are actually very spiritual things as well. A time when the realization of Jewish sovereignty comes back over Jerusalem, the building of the Holy Temple, the impl- full implementation of the mitzvot, that today we are not able to do majority of the mitzvot out of the 630 commandments. Today we're only able to do 288, I think, it is, less than 208, I'm sorry. Much less than that, and if you're out of Israel, even less than that. And if you're, then certain circumstances that you need to be, either a Kohen or a Levi and so on. So many of those commandments we can't do. Well, negative commandments, by just not doing them, we're not doing them. But we're talking about positive commandments. So when we talk about the coming of Mashiach, and when we look at it from a full picture, Maimonides sums it up as follows at the end of his book, Yad Chazaka. Maimonides says as follows, text number one, which is going to be on page 45 in the textbook. Maimonides says as follows, I'll read it for those that don't have the textbook, which is, the king Mashiach is destined to arise and restore the sovereignty of the house of David to its former rule. He will build a temple and gather the dispersed of Israel in his days. The Torah laws will be reinstated. When there arises a king from the house of David who studies Torah and fulfills the mitzvahs of his ancestor David, in accordance with both the written and oral law, he will influence all of the Israel to walk in its ways, repair its breaches, and he will fight the battles of God He is presumed to be Mashiach. If he does this and is successful and builds the temple in its place and gathers the dispersed of Israel, then he is definitely Mashiach. He will then improve the entire world to serve God together. As it is written, then I will transform the nations in pure language that will call upon the name of God and serve him with one purpose. In that era there will be no famine, no war, no envy, no competition. For goodness will be abundant and all delights will be as commonplace as dust. The sole occupation of the world will be only to know God as it is written. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as it water covers the sea. So what we see, one of the things that he mentions over here, what are the things that are needed for Mashiach to come? When Moshiach comes, he's going to build a holy temple, gather all dispersed people from the universe, everybody will come to know the knowledge of God, will be an abundance of knowledge of spiritual in abundance. Now, I'm sure, if I ask any of you, what was an easier thing to sell? If I tell you you, you want Mashiach because you're going to have no more poverty and there's going to be, uh, be no, more, no more sickness and no more crime, or am I going to tell you because you know what? You're going to be able to know God in its fullest way. Last week was probably an easier sell than this prophecy that we're talking about this week. Uh, yes? So if he's gathering everybody, theoretically, is he gathering none of you? So we're going to get to all the actual people. particulars in lesson number five and lesson number six of how it's going to happen. So I'm going to give, leave you in a cliffhanger there. Okay, but we're now first talking about the era, the why, and we're going to get to in the next future lessons yes, the more details of what's be going to happen.
1: Anything, but there will still
0: be classes? classes of people? Yeah. 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 Like, class, Not at, people at all. Because everybody's going to... Oh, we'll see. It. Okay. Lesson but the question over here is... The question that we have... Again, we're focusing on the why. The question that we have is, number one... Why is it necessary? Why does the messianic goal of a better world require universal recognition of God and its full implementation of the Torah and mitzvahs? Why is it necessary? Why can't we just have a world with no famines, no poverty? Why do we have to have the Holy Temple there? Why do I have to, Why does the messianic prophecy have to be a time and a place of God's full implementation of all the Torah and mitzvahs? Yes, I understand that's the way it was 2,000 years ago. Yes, I know that the holy temple stood there many years ago. But why is it to be able to have the messianic prophecy and the messianic stage, the messianic goal, as Maimonides puts it, is that the world should know the knowledge of God in its fullest. And number two, why isn't it enough just to have world peace? Why do they have to know that God is the one? Why isn't it enough just the elimination of diseases, elimination of or crime, elimination of anything of that, of that type, of all negativity, materialistic negativity be removed, why the spiritual component of the coming of Mashiach? Why do we have to have that? And that's going to be our two driving questions that we're going to talk about today, which is going to help us understand what is the coming of Mashiach. What does it really mean? Though we spoke about last week the world moving in a positive state, the world coming to a positive reality, the world coming to a place where there is no crime, there is no sickness, there is no poverty, and so on and so forth. As we went into the discussion of last week, but the real question is here, what is the need for the coming of Moshiach? What is it all about? And to answer this question, we need to go a little bit deeper. And as we always discussed, everything in Judaism and everything in this world is made of two components. A body and a soul. A person is a microcosm of the world. Is a microcosm of the way God creates and runs the world. And just like we are made up of a body and a soul, so too everything that happens in this world and everything that is in this world is also made up of a body and a soul. The body of the coming of Moshiach is what we discussed last week. Is this exact idea of the promises of materialistic abundance, materialistic change, and a physical change that is going, an utopia of peace, virtuality, no envy, no stealing, no crime, and so on and so forth, that's going to happen in the world. The soul... Can I, yes. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. So, you, does that mean that there's going to be no death when Mashiach comes? At a certain stage, as I said, we'll get to these the particulars in the time... Yes, we spoke about it. Yeah, last week the death will be swallowed into the ground forever. But the particulars—what, when, and how—is going to be lesson five and six.
1: We'll find. So lesson
0: five and six. That's why you have to come all the way to the end. All the good questions. All all the good questions. All those things we'll get to. And if at lesson six we haven't covered it, then we'll get to those things as well. (laughs) You see? So what we have over here is follows. So far. The body and the soul, the body is the materialistic change, while the soul is the spiritual change. And the question is, or what we'll be exploring today, is, is the soul, the inner dimension of why the world was created. Why do we need the coming of Mashiach? Where do we go from here? And this is what we're going to focus on today. So what we're going to look at today is... In the, in the, last week we spoke about the body of the coming of Mashiach. today we're going to start with the soul, the spiritual transformation, but even more so, why the need for that spiritual transformation, which is going to help us answer these two questions as well. So our first step in understanding why we need Mashiach, why we need a redemption to begin with, is exploring to the inside story and understanding and realizing that Moshiach is not a new idea. The concept of Mashiach is probably the most pervasive idea and feature in Judaism. Moshiach is not something that Jews just believe will happen and fall out of the sky. It's in fact woven into every single fabric of our faith. Just to give you a few examples, okay, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but just take an example. If I were to ask you, what is the most important part of prayer? If you pick a prayer, and I have to say a certain prayer, which prayer do I feel like is the most pinnacle part of the prayer? The part where I ask God my most basic requests. Everything of the prayer leads up to it. It's the only part of the prayer which you say silent. It's the only part of the prayer which you have your feet together. It's the only part of the prayer which you must stand for. It's the only part of the prayer that you have to have absolute proper intention while you say it. It is called the Amida. The Amida prayer is the first prayer that we mention is the prayer that we have during the service that after we say the Shema, we put our feet together and we ask God 18 different requests. 18 different blessings, I should say. Three in the beginning, which are a praise. Three at the end, which are praise. So I'm left with 12 different blessings. Out of those 12 blessings, how many of them do you think have to do with the coming of Moshiach? Six of them. Besides, for the ones at the beginning and the ones at the end that also talk about the coming of Mashiach, a total of nine blessings almost have to do with the coming of Mashiach. And you can see it. I'm not going to go through it in in text number two, but in text number two, it mentions all the different prayers of the Amidah, whether it's asking God to see the rede- redemption, sounding the shofar for the upcoming redemption of putting back the judges, going back to the land of Jerusalem, speedily bringing the coming of Mashiach. And so on and so forth. So we have all those blessings. To take it even a step further. Even a person who is standing in the land of Israel. Standing in front of the Holy Temple. Standing by the Kotel. He still says, and bring us back to the Holy State of Jerusalem. Because we know that Israel today is not the way that it's going to be in the time of the coming of Mashiach. We don't have the Holy Temple. So we're talking about a one prayer that we say, that's besides for the rest of the prayers that we mentioned, the coming of Moshiach, every single day, we say it three times a day, and six of those blessings have to do with the coming of Moshiach. That means a third of our requests are about the Moshiach. That's besides at the end where I say in English, asking God that he should build the holy temple. That's besides in the beginning that I ask for it, and so on and so forth. Let's take another time. What else do Jews do a lot? Eat, right? In our prayers that we do when we eat, in the grace after meals, we begin with a prayer. Whether it's a day that we say tahran or not, we say Shir Amaylas, which is a psalm asking about the coming of Mashiach, or Al Nares Bavo. It's another psalm which talks about the loneliness of the exile. Then we continue into the actual blessings. Every single time, the third blessing is build Jerusalem. Besides that, on Shabbat there's an extra blessing talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's just every time we eat. Let's go a step further. The Jewish calendar. Three weeks, you have this in figure 2.1. Three weeks of um, of the Jewish year, from the 17th of Tammuz until the 9th of Av, we mourn the destruction of the Holy Temple. On every, almost in every one of our holidays, we just celebrate a Passover on the Seder plate, or during the Seder, who do we open the door for? Elijah the prophet for the time of the coming of Mashiach. We're also awaiting that. The fifth cup for the time of the coming of Mashiach. Another thing, life cycles, weddings, by a wedding, what do we say? Mehera will we give the bride and groom a blessing, that we should soon hear the voice of the bride and groom in Jerusalem. We break a glass to remember the destruction of the Holy Temple and the waiting for the Holy Temple, the rebuilding of the Holy Temple. Again, a life cycle, what is the first thing that's on our mind is the coming of Mashiach. And then, unfortunate times, by death and mourning, When we go to console a mourner, what do we wish them? We say, Hamokei minachem eschem may the omnipresent console you amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Again, we compare it and bring the concept of mourning of Zion and Jerusalem to these ideas. So what is it? It's in everything we do and in everything we say. You can't miss it. It's in our daily prayers. It's at mealtimes. It's at Jewish calendar. It's at the Jewish wedding. And it's at death and mourning. Even more so, It goes further than that. As we mentioned Maimonides, we spoke about this last week, Maimonides mentions 13 principles of faith. 13 cardinal principles of faith that a person should have. Of those principles of faith, two of them, two of the 13, have to do with the coming of Mashiach. Here, see the video.
1: Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, known in Hebrew by his acronym, Rambam, and in English as Maimonides, was the Jewish star of the 12th century and a luminary for humanity. One of the greatest codifiers of Torah law and a giant of Jewish philosophy, he formulated a list of the 13 principles of Jewish faith, or as he described them, Judaism's fundamental truths and very foundation. To this day, Jewish communities worldwide recite or sing summarized versions of Maimonides' 13 Principles. 1. God exists. God is the essence of perfection and the primary cause of all existence. 2. God is one. He is not a composite or divisible, but the most absolute and unparalleled unity. 3. God is non-corporeal. He has no body or part. And all references to God couched in the terms of human experience, such as movement, rest, seeing, and speaking, are metaphors. 4. God is eternal. This also means that nothing pre-existed God or brought God into being. 5. We must serve God exclusively. That precludes worshipping any entity or force that God created, or that we have imagined. 6. God communicates through prophecy. It takes hard work to become spiritually fit for prophecy, and even then, communication is entirely God's choice and initiative. 7. The prophecy of Moses is supreme. God chose him from all humanity, for all of time, to receive the highest degree of prophetic experience. Eight. The Torah is of divine origin. The Torah scrolls every word, along with the explanations that Moses delivered to us orally. his all from God's mouth. Nine. The Torah is not susceptible to change. It was delivered by God in deliberate form and never can or will be amended in any way. Ten. God knows everything. This includes God's active attention to each individual at every moment. 11. God rewards and penalizes. God communicated His expectations and gave us the ability to choose. He assures that our choices bear consequences. 12. There will be a Messiah and a Messianic era. A time will come in which the Torah will be fulfilled in entirety, and we will fully benefit from the blessings that will ensure as a result. The Messianic Era will be conducted by a mortal Messiah, a descendant of King David, who will become an unparalleled global leader. We must constantly anticipate His arrival. 13. There will be a resurrection of the dead. At some point, God will restore the departed souls of the righteous from heaven and recreate their bodies to participate in and benefit from a perfected world. These principles begin with God as the primary cause of existence and conclude with the perfected world. Our ancient sages reveal that the reason that God created all that exists is for us to actively build the perfected world of the messianic era.
0: So we see very clearly from here, you have 13 principles, 13 foundations. What are the last two? About the coming of Moshiach and the resurrection of the dead. If you look at this short list, and if you look at the two of them, that means we're talking about over here, about concepts of saying belief and anticipation of the coming of Moshiach, and the belief in the resurrection. Those are the two that Maimonides mentions are the principles of faith. But they are on the same par as belief in God, the oneness of God, divinity of the Torah, all those principles, and the belief in the coming of Mashiach. What we see over here is that the belief in the coming of Mashiach is central to Jewish life. We find it in our rituals, we find it in our prayers, we find it in our belief system. Why is it that the yearning for Mashiach, the anticipation for Mashiach, is so central to Judaism, and what makes its beliefs so, so fundamental. What is in it? So last week we gave one sidebar, which could be a reason. And we explained that because the Jewish people have been persecuted throughout the ages, gone through many different difficult times, what was their one shining light that got them through that allowed them to persevere was they believed that this was all temporary and there's going to be a time of the coming of Mashiach. Yes? So, I'd like to
1: understand, why not, um, that all sects, different sects of
0: Judaism have a concept of Mashiach. As we're going to see, as we're going to move this along, as you just saw, number one, it's in our prayers and any Jew that prays Three times a day says that at least nine times a day. Any Jew that says the grace after meals says it twice in his grace after meals. Any Jew that does a wedding ceremony says it in their blessing ceremony. A Jew celebrating Passover. So it's a central belief in every single spectrum throughout the Judaism. We're not, and as we're soon going to see... This is not something that came up with Maimonides. And as we are just about to say, the concept is, so what someone want to suggest, is why was Moshiach so central of a belief? Was because this what got us through our troubles. We knew to anticipate for something greater, this is only temporary, so it helped us get out of our troubles. But there's one problem with that. Number one, so would you say that today that we don't have those troubles, that we're not being persecuted, we're not running for our lives, I don't have to believe in the coming of Mashiach doesn't say that anymore. Number two, we'll find something even more unique. The concept of the belief in the coming of Moshiach and the faith in a promised redemption is something which is mentioned way earlier than Jews being persecuted. If we look in the Torah, and this answers your question as well, look in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Jewish people about before they go into the land of Israel, text number three. Page 55 for those that have the book. God will return your exiles and he will have mercy upon you. He will return and gather you, gather you from all nations amongst from whom God has scattered you. If your outcasts will be at the ends of the heavens, from there he will gather you, from there he will take you. God will bring you into the land of our ancestors, possessed, and you will possess it. And you will do good and you will multiply your ancestors and you will return and listen to the voice of God and fulfill all his commandments. Moses is talking, about, is talking to the Jews 3,300 years ago. And what is he telling the Jews? That there's going to be a time that we're going to return to the land of Israel. He's prophesying both the exile, that you're going to be scattered all over the world, and the redemption. And this is before any type of exile, before any anticipation of anything before anything has taken place. So what we see very clearly here, that this concept of Moshiach has nothing to do with us getting through troubled times. It's not just a solution. Moshe prophesied it as an exile and a redemption as part of a process that has to take place. Similarly, there are many other prophecies that Maimonides mentioned from Amos, from Tsefania, from Isaiah, from Hezekiel, and those people were the time of the first holy temple. Before there was even an exile. Before the destruction of the second temple. So clearly Mashiach is not a byproduct or a response to exile. It was there before exile. It was a purpose to exile. Not a byproduct of it. But even take it a step further. In fact, there's a great commentator on the Torah named Rabbeinu Bahya. Rabbeinu B'chai is someone to pronounce him. And this fellow Rabbeinu Bahaya tells us as follows. On the first verse in the book of Genesis, text number 4a, he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and earth, and the earth was chaotic and desolate. And darkness was on the face of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the waters. So the Torah is telling us over here about the original state of the world it's chaotic, it's desolate, it's full of darkness. Sounds familiar, right? (laughs) But then all of a sudden something else happens. There's a Spirit of God hovering over the water. What does that mean? Spirit of God. (laughs) Rabbeinu B'chai explains in text number 4b. He tells us as follows. That Spirit of God, this is the soul of Mashiach. What does that mean? The meaning of the medrush in the passage God is foretelling at the end, the beginning. The Torah's intention is to indicate that the end of time is the very beginning of time, to teach us that the ultimate purpose of God's creation of the world in the days of Mashiach, thus the original thought, is actualized in the conclusion of the work. The original idea of how you make something, you only see it once the product is finished the original thought of why God wanted to create the world, why did God create the world, the ultimate purpose in God creating the world was for Mashiach. Rabbeinu Bechayet tells us this on the basic words, on the first words of the Torah, telling us that the entire and ultimate purpose for the world's creation was solely for the coming of Mashiach. So let's summarize this for a moment. What we have over here. We know that Mashiach is number one, a central pillar of Jewish faith. Number two, Mashiach is essential in our prayer and practices and rituals. Number three, Mashiach predates exile, so it can't be a byproduct of a way for us to maneuver and persevere exile. And number four, most importantly, Moshiach predates the creation of the world. So why then? Why did God make the world? Let's understand this for a moment. Very good question. And this is a very obvious why question. The question is that we're going with the last point that we just made. If God made the world with the purpose for Moshiach, why couldn't he just make the world in the beginning with Mashiach there? Why put us through the hassle? Why put us through the exile? Because if God was perfect, if He wants to, if God is a perfect God, and therefore he knows what he wants, it's not like us that we have to engineer and make the products to be able to figure it out, and then we have the product that we first intended. God knows what he wants. Because then there would be no purpose to creation. If, if his the purpose is Mashiach, make the purpose right away. If that's the purpose, if the purpose of creating the world is that Moshiach should come, as the Ravinu Nubachi explained, so then create the world in a way of Moshiach. Just, just create the world that way in the first place. One second. So what we have over here is, what we saw last week, in human history was a progression. In the beginning of the millennium, people were behaving the way they did, and because of that, it got bad, then things start getting better, right? And as we're looking now in last week's class, we saw that from the data from the past three, three, four hundred years, the world was improving. But if what God wanted, that the world should improve and come to this utopia of peace, tranquility, no poverty, no suffering, prosperity, harmony, tranquility, He could have created it from that way to the beginning. Why put us through this struggle? So to understand this, we've got to back up a little more, and we now have to go into the why, which is that we're going to talk about today is, why did even God make a world? Why do you have to create this physical world? Okay, why did he create it for Moshiach? did that be before? What do you mean? Why to create it for Moshiach? That means he created the world with the purpose to come to the coming of Moshiach. Yeah, but... You're asking why? That's more, exactly our question. Exactly. So that's what we're going to talk about. So the question that we want to first know is, why did God even have to create the world? Why create the world? So the next few texts that we're going to talk about, and what the rest of the class that we're going to focus on, is going to be based on the Tanya of chapters 36 and 37. And the Tanya, as you know, is the classic Bible of Chabad Hasidism, and the Tanya this talks about the purpose of man, the purpose of creation, and putting the two together. And here's what the first Chabad Rebbe writes in the Tanya text number 5. As is known, the sages have said that the purpose of the creation of this world is that God desired that he should have a home in the lowly world. It is also known that the days of Moshiach, and especially the time of the resurrection of the dead, are the fulfillment of the culmination of this creation, of this world, and the purpose of which it was originally created. What the Tanya is telling us over here in text number five, it provides us with a one-line statement, which is the mantra of Hasidism and Chabad Hasidism, especially for the past 200 years, is what is the purpose, why did God create the world? What's the mission statement for us in this world? And in Hebrew, the word is dira, To make a dwelling place for God in this world. God desired to have a home in a lowly world. The word in Hebrew is the lowest of all levels. The Kabbalistic term of this is the physical world as opposed to a higher spiritual world. That God wanted a desire that in this physical, materialistic, selfish, egotistic world should be a home for God. As the tanya continues in text number 6, and this is what the human being is all about. This is the purpose of the human being's creation. And of all creations of the world, both the lofty and the lowly, that God should have a home in the lowly world. Again, if we look at the words that the tanya uses, is tachtonim the lowly world why the lowly world just say the non-spiritual world but over here there's a certain verbiage that is used as the lowly world granted it's not as spiritual as the whole as the higher worlds it's not as spiritual as a place which is selfless and godly but why lowly worlds and the tanya addresses this point the concept of lowly worlds materialistic worlds, as opposed to higher worlds, what does this mean? God is not in space and time, God is not limited to time and space, so how does this work? The next text, which is text number seven, is a very long text, very philosophical text. We're going to read it first inside, and then we're going to break it up into pieces to better understand what this is talking about. And this text is from the Tanya chapter 36. And Natalia states as follows. Page 63. Now, in regard to God, the distinction of higher and lower do not apply, as God pervades all realms of existence. But the explanation of the matter is as follows. Before the world was created, God was exclusively and singularly one. And he pervaded the entire space in which he created the world. Insofar as God is concerned, it is still the same now. The change brought about by the divine act of creation only relates only to those who are in the receiving end, that's us, of the vitality and energy that God infuses into creation, which they receive via the many garments that conceal and obscure the divine radiance as it is written, for no human can see me and live. This is the concept of hishtal shalut, the downward descent of the world. Level after level, by means of multitude of garments that conceal the energy of vitality, that emanate from God until the physical and materialistic world was created, which is the lowest in degree, of which there is none lower in regard to the concealment of God's radiance. This is a world that has doubled and redoubled darkness, to the extent that it is full of unholiness namely elements that actually oppose God, declaring, I am, and there is nothing else besides me. Clearly, the purpose of of the worlds and the descent, level after level, is not for the sake of the height, spiritual worlds, as they constitute descent from the radiance of the Divine Presence. Rather, the ultimate purpose of the creation is the lowest world. For such was God's desire that he should derive satisfaction, when the forces opposing godliness are overcome and when darkness is transformed into light, the result is that the infinite radiance of God is revealed within the physical world, the place of darkness on the opposing forces with the advantage of the light that comes from the darkness with even greater intensity than its revelation in the higher worlds. So let's break this up and let's understand what's going on here. There's a lot of information, but it's basically telling us two ideas. One idea, which is called hishtalshelot, literally means a chain reaction. Also described as the descent of the worlds as they come down, level after level. And then number two he talks about here is why God desires especially a home in the lowly world. And let's discuss these concepts and then we'll go back and reflect what the Tanya is telling us over here. The first thing is hishtalshelot. What does it mean? Hishtal means descent of the world. In English we would call it devolution. You know, the same way there is an evolution, an evolution is something that evolves and becomes bigger and better and greater. Devolution is something which means that there's a sequence of steps which diminish and become less and less and less. So according to the teachings of Kabbalah we know that we inhabit a materialistic and physical world. And above us, in order for this physical world to come, there had to be, a, so to speak, a devolution, a lower and lower world where the spiritual high started. In the words of the Kabbalah, let's give you a little bit of Kabbalistic stuff here. We have over here the four worlds. The four worlds, of course, consists of many levels, but we're going to focus on the first one and the lowest one. The first one, as you can see, is called Atzilus, the world of emanation. The lowest world is the world of action, the physical universe that we're referring to today. What's the difference between a higher world and a lower world? It's not talking about a higher world in space where I can take a space shuttle and start from a Sia and I'll voom, go all the way up to That's not happening. It's conceptually. It's the same way when your child comes home and you say they got an A versus a D on their report card. A, a is higher than a D, not in space and time, but conceptually, uh, A is higher than a D. Same ideas over here as well. That's one, uh, that Atsilus uh, is conceptually higher than Acia, which is the lower level. That's one way of looking at it. But Tanya rejects this idea, this definition. And as we read in the first two paragraphs of text number seven, is because from God's reality, God is all over the same. God is the same in Atsilus and in Asiya. The only difference is for us. So, how does that work out? What does higher and lower mean? In fact, the Tanya explains that higher and lower means and is defined by revelation. And concealment. What does that mean? Let's take for example. A hundred years ago, there was a fellow who discovered. M C. Equals. Right. E. e. I'm sorry. E equals M C squared. Right. But I just see. E equals M C squared. I'm sorry. I mixed it up. Right. How many years ago? Who was that? Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. Did it not exist before Einstein knew it? Huh? It did exist. What did he do? He revealed it. Let's take it even better. If you have two rooms, a room of a bunch of scientists and physicists, and a room of a bunch of first graders, the mathematical equation of E equals C squared, right? E equals MC squared. In the room of the scientists, it's revealed. Not only revealed, but it's being debated, discussed, and understood. Doesn't that exist in the room of the first graders? It, exist. it does exist. The only difference is they don't, know about it they don't know about it. What we would call that in English is called concealed. It's hidden. The Hasidic teaching tells us that if you take the word olam, the word olam has an interesting, same, shares the same words as the word helam which means concealment. Every world is another concealment. Every time we create another world, so to speak, another level means another concealment. That means the moment Atsilo started, it may be the highest world, but there was already a concealment up there, right? It just got, kept on getting more and more concealed until it got to this world of the fourth world. So when we talk about the difference between the highest world and the lowest world, what are we talking? In the higher world, there are more revelations. In the lower world, there are less revelations. It's more concealed. Yes.:
1: Could you think about that as a human having that hope? So Let me give you
0: that example in a human as well, if you want just to give you a little better example. Where is your intellect in your brain? How does your toe move? Why don't How does your toe move? Well,
1: Matt, it moves
0: because of my brain. So in your, do you see your brain in your toe? No. It's concealed. Right. But nobody will say there's no, I need to have my nervous system to be able to send a message to my toe. In my brain, my intellect is revealed. And therefore I value it as this is where the head is. In my toe, it's concealed, but it's still there. Okay? The same idea would also be in an idea, in a conceptualizing ideas. I have an idea of what I want to do. I want to build a home. That idea. Where is it closest? In my brain. The moment I build it, what happened? Do I see my intellect in the home? I see intellect because it's a beautiful home. It doesn't mean it's my intellect. I'm going to get to that, how it applies in a moment. Yes?
1: So, in essence, before creation, Hashem... Sure, sure.
0: Let's get to before creation. We're going to get to that in a moment. Because see how this all works. Yes? Question. Yes. You said in the higher world there are more revelations,
1: and in the lower world where we are, there's less revelation.
0: Correct. It's more concealed. So as the worlds go on, as they devolve, so to speak, there's less and less of that revelation and more and more of a concealment. Okay? okay? So we're going to get to the world of how God created and where we fall into the picture in just a moment. Okay? So before we looked at the 13 principles and the 13 foundations of faith, what is God what were one of the first what was the first one of the 13 foundations of faith? Describe our Jewish belief in God. Right? That's the first. Now imagine. What was the first one? So we said. The first four of those foundations, in fact, was divinity of God, belief in God, divinity of the Torah, and so on and so forth. Imagine if those words were not just words on paper, but they were reality in front of you. You would see the absolute perfection and reality of God right in front of you. No concealment, absolute revelation. Would I have to tell you to believe? No. Why not? Because it's in front of me. Not only that, would you even have an opportunity to be a dependent thinker outside of God? No. Now let's look at the world that we live. The world that we live in, there are, of course, many God-fearing people. Many people that believe in God. But, there's a choice. There are people that live in this world that don't believe in God, God forbid. There are people that decided... In the words of the Tanya that we read in text number seven, I am, and there's nothing else besides me. That's the person driving down the middle of two lanes, that be the person that rushes to the buffet, whatever it may be. But there are people that believe that they are it and the entire world revolves around them, and there is nothing else that exists besides them. All of this would be impossible if the truth of God would be pervading in the entire universe. The only reason why this allows for somebody to believe that they are an independent creature, that they even have the right to think about against God, is because God is concealed. Should God be revealed in every single entry, as the way he is in the higher world, so to speak, nobody would be independent. This is the meaning. When the Tanya uses and quotes no human can see me and live. What does it mean you no know, human can see me? You can't be human and have a revealed relationship of God. You can't be an independent being. you can't see a divine reality, and at the same time be human. You can't have a tangible reality of godliness and then be independent. You cannot have an independent... You can have, see, cannot see a reality of God and at the same time maintain an autonomous, self-wanting desires,
1: like
0: inclination. That. But isn't that only, you wouldn't exist. Isn't that having to do with the ego? Even, you wouldn't have an ego. Because automatically, if you would see godliness, we would cease, cease to exist the way we believe ourselves. You won't be human. So we won't be capable of seeing anything other than God.
1: To we'll to see the
0: God. But he didn't see God. And only, and we're going to get to it with a good question. And even Moses himself was only when he was up on the mountain for 40 days, 4 nights, and therefore he didn't have to depend on food. But he himself did not see God. And when he did see God, that's why Moses was, what does the Torah describe him? The most humble of all people. He wasn't independent. He didn't see himself. He saw himself as a conduit. So Correct. It's all metaphor. Like, what does he look like? We don't. That means a revealed level of God. We don't see God, the revelation of whatever God is. It's just a metaphor. Let's see it in text number 8, in the words of the Tanya, page 67. The fact that every creation and every event appears to us as a tangible and real is only because we do not apprehend and see with our physical eyes the godly energy and the divine breath within each creation. Listen to this. But if we were allowed... To see and apprehend the vitality and spirituality being infused in every creation by the divine utterance, the physicality, materiality, and the substance of the creation would be utterly invisible to us. As such, there literally is nothing besides him. You know, once this kindergarten told the class to draw a picture of God. So this one kid drew a scale. So the teacher goes over to the kid and says, Why did you what do you make over here? She says, That's God. She says, Why is that God? She says, Because every time my mother steps on the scale, she goes, Oh my God.
1: <laughs> so then Halem or concealment Correct. is bigger than the world.
0: Well, the world is a concealment of God. The world by definition is a concealment of godliness. So is
1: Olam and that's
0: why the word olam, which means world, and the world, which means word, which means concealment, are exact same words. Yes, but let's take another look at it. Of these same figure that we had before, of the four worlds. I'm just going to go back there a second. If you look at this figure, you have atzilus, emanation, bria, creation, yitzirah, formation, and Asiya action. God's concealment in each one gets darker and darker as we go down. And therefore, in Atsilus, in the highest level, what does the word Atsilus mean? comes from the word Eitzel. Very close. It's right near God. So yes, there's a concealment. But at the same time, there's also a great revelation. And as it goes down to the physical world, our world that we're in currently, is so dark and is so distant from this Reality from that spirituality, that because of that the concealment is so great that we have the power, so to speak, or we have the ability to stay in this world and think that we possess powers that we perceive are our own. The only reason why we think that we're independent creatures and independent beings is because this concealment is so great. And yet, what is the Tanya tell us? Where does God want a home? Not in Nazilus, not in Bria, not in Yitzhira, but here in this lowly world where we, the entire people, the entire situation, the entire spiritual infrastructure seems gone, concealed. And here in this lowly world is what God says, make a home for me. Why is that?
1: So this circle is emblematic of olam.
0: Correct. Those are four olams. And as you go down, the concealment gets stronger. And what we see over here is that what does God want? Where does God want his home? He doesn't want it in atzilut, in the highest olam, in the highest level of concealment. He wants it in the lowest level. What's the proof that God wants it in the lowest level? What's the proof? I'm sure you can figure it out. Ever done a mitzvah? How do you do a mitzvah? How do we do a mitzvah? What does God say to do in a mitzvah? He says, listen here. To take a mitzvah, I want you to take a physical talus, a piece of wool, and make it into a talus. Take a physical piece of parchment and make it into something holy. Why? Why take the physical and transform it? Because over here, what God is telling us is to take the physicality and transform it into spirituality. We don't believe as in other religions, in asceticism, leaving the physicality for a state of a higher spiritual existence. What does God tell us? On the contrary, take whatever you got, take all the physical things you have, and make them holy. Involve yourself in physical things. If physical was so bad, if physical was a concealment of godliness, if physical was something that I shouldn't be involved in doing because it's an independent of God, then why would I involve myself with it? But what does God tell us on the contrary? Take that physical item, take that coin, take that money, take that garment, but make it holy. Look what it says, text number 9. Powerful words. Moses tells the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy. Page 68. This mitzvah I command you today is not mysterious to you, nor is it far away. It is not in heaven that you should say who shall go up to heaven for us and get it for us and teach it for us so that we can do it. Where is it? Where does God tell you the mitzvah is? The most important line that Moses tells us in the Torah. The line that the entire tanya is based on. Rather, the matter is close to you. Not only is it close to you, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. What do we see from here? The idea that divine purpose of creation can be fulfilled only in the physical world is a theme that the Torah is all about. The Tanya only adds logical proof, but it says it in the Torah. The Torah is not in heaven. The Torah is here in this world. Why did God give us the Torah in this world? Because this is where he wants his home to be. And as we read before in text number 7, clearly the whole purpose of this ishtalshlus, this, this evolution, of going down level after level and level is only because for the sake of the higher worlds. Because the only reason why it came to a lower level, the ultimate purpose of creation was in the lower world. What does this mean? If every level of concealment brings to a greater and lower level, So yes, Atsilus is a world where there's concealment. And yes, Briod is a world of concealment, but it's much lower, much less than it is in this world. Where is the room for absolute? Which room? Where, I'm sorry, where is there a place where it leaves no room for self-perception or existence or personality? It's only in the higher world. But in the lower world, We have self-perception. We have personality. We have the human condition. So
1: is your soul considered to be in
0: the higher levels? Even your soul is enclosed in your body and limited to your body. So what's the Tanya's logic here? What was God's aim in creating all the worlds? Was God's aim spirituality or physicality? God's aim was materialism. But God's aim at the same time was that even the most physical world should get a dose of spirituality. That means if it would be a very spiritual... Think of it this way. Imagine if God was to make an absolute ultimate spiritual world. Would there be a world? No, because the definition of world means concealment. The very fact that God created a world means he wants it to be concealed. And even the smallest concealment, even if it's a sealest concealment, is to the concealment, then more no concealment. Therefore, we must conclude that what was God looking for here? Revelation or concealment? Concealment, concealment. because if he wanted revelation, he didn't have to create the worlds. So, what's the conclusion that the Tanya proposes here? That what if God's whole purpose is concealment, and that's why he created concealment? What concealment would he want? The greatest concealment, because so what else? Why else would he make concealment? Because then, what's the greatest concealment? The physical world we're in. So the purpose of all creation is the concealment of what we're in. But the question is why? Why does God have a desire? So why? It's because God has a desire that we know. But why in a lowly, flawed, antagonistic world would you want to make your home? It's like you're saying, you know what the best place to make my home? I'm going to find the area that's the worst, the dumps of the dumps, and I'm going to build my palace there. Why there? So he's just
1: saying, I think I hear you say, that the physical world
0: is the greatest place, the greatest world of concealment. Of course, yes. And it's like the dumps. And God is saying, I want it here. So what does the Tanya tell us? So the Tanya explains to us in the final segment of the long paragraph that we read before, that God's desire is that when there is opposing forces, Of darkness and light, you were mentioning before, and darkness tries to supersede and overpower the light. That the light should be able to overpower the darkness, and that light that God reveals in this physical world with a greater intensity and revelation than the higher worlds. Just just hold on one second. I'm going to mute the (laughs) nemtars. One way of understanding of why God wanted a home in the lowly world is let's put ourselves in God's mindset for a moment, so to speak. Let's play God and ask ourselves, if you were perfect in every way, you were infinite, you were eternal, you were utterly self-sufficient, what would you still want? Imagine you had everything and anything you needed. You were perfect. What would you still want? Love. You're perfect. You have it. I
1: Recognition.
0: Now, so. If I'm perfect, I don't need anything, right? So imagine if you were perfect. What are you missing? False. Okay. Four.
1: Imperfection.
0: Imperfection. So if a person would be perfect, it would seem like they're missing nothing. Because then they wouldn't be perfect. Perfect means you're all empowering. Appreciation. Huh? Appreciation. Okay, so a perfect and all-powering thing, number one, doesn't experience a challenge. Because if you're perfect, there's no challenges, right? Another thing a a perfect person doesn't have, doesn't experience achievement. You never have that satisfaction of, wow, I did it, because I'm perfect. It's like the smartest kid in the class, never feels like they ever accomplished anything. A perfect and all-powerful person, you mentioned something before, doesn't have a relationship. Because what's a relationship? A give and take. If I'm perfect and I have nothing to give and I have nothing to take. I mean, I have all to give, but I have nothing to take. So the next time somebody tells you, I want to marry the perfect person, say, you can't have a relationship with something perfect. Because if you're perfect, that you don't need anything from the person, and that person doesn't need anything from you.
1: The
0: achievement. Now, even more so, and a perfect person doesn't need a partnership. Now think of this. Of course, God doesn't need any of these things. He doesn't need a relationship.
1: No.
0: He doesn't need achievements. He doesn't need accomplishments. But what is it? Nis You ever hear the word a taiva, taava, nit God has a desire. He doesn't need of these things. But the first foundation, which is the first foundation of Jewish belief, huh? But the desire already, already not Oh, that's exactly my point. I'll get you. Here we go. That means God doesn't need any of these things. That's the first fundamental of Jewish beliefs that we saw. But as we've seen, because God is absolutely perfect and self-sufficient, what does He do? Step number one, He creates a concealment. The moment there's a small concealment on the level of atzilut, what do He now have? A desire. Think about it in your own mind. I'm just going to take you a little bit of a whole new idea and the Hasidism and Kabbalah explains. Let's say you want to build a building. In order for you to want to build a building, you have to have the want. But what's the step before the want? By the step before the want, is there even a building? Is there even an idea that you want a building? No, because what do I need a building for? In order for me to want to build the building, I already have to have a concealment. I have to say, okay, I want something. You follow? The same idea is by God. If God wants to create the worlds, He wants to have a desire, that was concealment number one. Concealment number two, as then as it evolved, was this level that God wanted a desired something in the lowly worlds. That means, paradoxically speaking, think of it this way everything that a perfect being could desire requires imperfection. Think about it the only way you can desire these things. It's only if you have imperfection. If, you have, if you're perfect, then you can't desire it. So why did now... Think about this now. Go a step further. Why did God create our world and its entire support system of the spiritual world? Because he wanted to create a reality of concealment which has the most imperfection possible.
1: To be more perfect.
0: To be able to have that relationship because he desired to build a home. In order if he has a desire to build a home... And if he had the desire to be able to create these things, there had to be an imperfect world. The more lowly something can be, the more you can fix it, the more you can repair it. It's like a person says, if I buy a house that's ready-made and ready-built, what relationship do I have with the house? I walked into it. But if I buy a fixer-upper, but if I buy a fixer-upper, which every single part of it I built from scratch... I have a relationship to this piece of wood, to that piece of wood. When God says, I'm going to make this world a fixer-upper, that's what God's basically saying. What's he telling us? I want partners. I want you to get involved. I need you. Let's see in text number 10, the Medrash tells us, everything that was God was created in the six days of creation, listen to this, requires further doing. The mustard seed needs to be tempered. Legumes need to be softened. Grain needs to be milled. Even the human being requires fixing. I know some of you may not think so, but it's true. Rashi says, this is the meaning of what it says, all is work which God created to make. The Torah doesn't say created and made, but rather created to make. This is to teach us that everything in this world requires fixing. Think about it. Were cell phones invented when God created the world? No, but he allowed the achievement of man to claim independence and make things in this world. God, in his absolute perfection and power, does not experience talent and achievement the way we do. So what did he do? He puts us through the challenges and achievements so we can feel accomplished.
1: So therefore, God
0: inserted... So white to create, for example, diseases, sadness... First of all, very good. because in every disease that God created, He created the cure before the disease. And He's waiting for us to discover it and find it, and to get that achievement. This is what it means, and we're going to get to now, back to how this is going to cross-reference with Mashiach. Oh, let's find out. This is what it means that God wanted to make the garments of the lowly world. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says, going back to what you asked. This is what's going to happen in the time of the coming of Moshiach. A time when all the garments, all the concealments will be removed. Text number 11. No longer shall your master be cloaked. Your eyes will see your master. What's going to happen in the time of the coming of Moshiach? All those concealments. The revelation will be at its greatest. This now takes us back to our first question. What did we ask? Why did God, if God wanted a perfect world, why didn't he make it that way? Because what happens? What did we see from what we just learned? That in the most perfect reality is really not so perfect. The most perfect reality is not a world. Because if it will be a world, there will be no concealment, so it's not perfect. And therefore, the phrase perfect world is really an oxymoron. Because world means concealment, that means there's imperfections, and perfect means there are no imperfections. So, therefore, by definition, any world, even at Silos, even the highest world, is imperfect. Because it consists of a concealment. And the world,
1: more.
0: Okay, one second, get into that. Now, more worldly, the more imperfect it is. But there's even something greater than perfection. Which is a world that fulfills the desire and steps up to the challenge. A world that people and imperfection create perfection. A world that is imperfect but creates the perfection. And hence this is the reason why God created the imperfect world. Because what did God say? God says, you know, I trust you. I believe in you. I created you to create, to improve the world, and make the world a better place. He created the imperfect world because he craves, he craves, and desires that of partnership. And who did he choose to be his partners? Us. And oh, throughout the millennium, throughout the exile, throughout the persecution, throughout the challenges that we have. Every single one of those challenges are God becoming our partner, and every single time we step up to the plate and do a mitzvah and find a discovery and change the world and make it a better place, we are partnering with God, which helps us now understand why the need for the soul of Moshiach, for the spiritual transformation and that why can't we just have no, heart, no hunger and no war and all the positive things that we mentioned. Because Moshiach is not just about world peace. The, righteous, the concept of Moshiach, the religious process, so to speak, is the driving force behind a materialistic world. What does that mean? Because the world is becoming more of a spiritual place closer to the coming of Mashiach. the world itself is finding more revolutionary ideas in perfecting itself. Take for example, just a little side note example. When in the universe, when and since the creation of the world, where so many people have access to the study of Torah? With one click, imagine that. One click, you can access almost any subject, any idea, any concept, anything you want to study. Enough Torah. Of course, it's also the same way we have godliness, the same way with one click you can destroy your whole life too. Right, but with one click you can study Torah you can sit here and we have people sitting in their own homes in the comfort of their own homes studying Torah of course they're missing the soup the physical they're missing but the spiritual you can get so the more the world becomes spiritual the more the material follows along as well the soul the same way in a body the soul is the engine of the body so too in the world in bringing it to its perfection for the coming of Moshiach is the soul, is the energy behind it. An interesting idea, just on a side note, the year that the Industrial Revolution happened, which was? 17, 18, 18 what? I think it was in the early 1800s, right? Late 1700s. I thought it was 1798, but, but so I, mean, I don't have it offhand. You can Google it. But when the Industrial Revolution, that was around the same time when this concept of Hasidism came to the masses. The spiritual in the world drives the physical, material change in the world as well. The phenomena of the world becoming a better place, as we showed in the statistic of last week, move together with the concept that we as people can also change the world more for a better place. We have more power today with social media to be able to activate so many more good things. Within 24 hours, you can raise millions of dollars and help so many people. On the other side,
1: you can also destroy
0: it of course. The... We, there's a counterbalance because God created that freedom of choice. Or else it wouldn't be freedom of choice. Now we have the million dollar question, which is how do we increase our awareness of God and make God in our lives more? So today... I'm going to give you the short answer and the long answer we're going to talk about next week. The short answer is this is what the Torah is all about. And as we tell, study Torah and now we as we do more mitzvahs with the divine wisdom that God has given us God says here here are your tools be my partner be my guest. How we accomplish this how this brings about the coming of Mashiach? that's next week. So next week we're going to understand and discuss how to accomplish this mission that God gave us. We'll discover how our actions are the bricks of the global structure, the home for God, that we're building in partnership with God. So come next week and learn how to partner with God to build a new world. Any questions? Are these
1: worlds, obviously, as is the, the world, are these worlds in the physical? Are they, are they physically exist? Or
0: they don't? No. You cannot take a spaceship and go through them. They're conceptually. So we talk about conceptually, going back, if you look, you see how the graph becomes darker and darker? It's because the concealment starts on high, and as the concealment of God at dev- devolutioning in the world, they go through um, these different levels of concealment. In fact, Atsilus is the highest level. Our souls come from the second one, which is called Bria creation. Then there's Yetzir, which is formation, which is the angels. And Asiyah is where our bodies, where is the physical action of the world. In the different...
1: Huh?
0: You don't go to any of those worlds. They're not physical places. They're, the neshama is from those places. The soul. the soul. The oh. soul where it goes to Gan Eden. It's a whole different picture. The worlds Ghanavim are Ghanavim. levels of spirituality. Is what? Is not no. The levels of spirituality. Like Moses, his soul came from the level of Atzilus Because he had only a fracture of concealment. That's why Moses was able to have that revelation of godliness more than any other human being. Because his soul was from a level where there was less concealment. As I mentioned, the moment you define something as a world, it has concealment. You follow? The moment I... The moment... Sorry? This is not easy. Yes. The moment you define something as a world, it means concealment. Because a world is, as you saw, is the same as concealment. That means it's hiding something in order for it to create that world.
1: So, quick little recap. In essence, in Hashem's original state, there's no room for anything else because there's only one. Correct. He contracts himself in order to allow room for there to be creation.
0: But that contraction is only related to us. No, I know. Okay. Saying, no, I'm so saying, but it's important to know, um, and that's what the Tanya mentions. We feel that contraction, as I mentioned, as the students and the physicists know the revelation, but the children. Are the ones that are missing it. So, yes. so
1: in essence, the reason why this world, the, the material physical world, is so low, is because the job of a human being is uh, to raise it up, correct? Make it higher spiritually.
0: To make a home for God.
1: So in essence, this is the purpose of a tikkun, tikkun, right? It,
0: it, it, it tikkun could be a word, but the concept that we find in the Madrash is dirah. Tikkun means you're fixing uh, something thought, that's there. The difference is the difference is tikkun means I'm fixing something that's there. Dira means I'm building a whole new thing. We're partners in building a whole new world. So we're not just fixing, we're transforming. You know, one's a renovation and one's a gut. So where is, is Ghanedin in the north? So as we get to class number four, we're going to talk about the difference in the world to come and Gan Eden is a place, is an idea, or is a place where the soul goes to after this world where it again now reaches to a level, huh? Is that a physical place? It's not a physical place either. It's a revelation. There is a physical element to it, but it's a revelation where there's less of a concealment. And even there, there is concealment, and that's what the neshama, the soul, every single year on the yurt site continues to climb, less and less of that concealment as we discussed in the previous course.
1: So we did study... Gan
0: Eden would be heaven. It's not, again, there's no place, there's no geographical map for it. It's a level of relationship that you have with God. That means, after a soul has done its job in this world, it comes to a place where it can now feel a revelation without the concealment based on its achievements in this world. So
1: is it that highest level of that Not necessarily.
0: Those levels are conceptual levels based on the level of what that soul has accomplished, that's the level it would be at. And it could
1: move up. No, Correct. And every year
0: it does move up based on the actions and the activities of the people, the people in this sh- world. Now, I have
1: a different question. You said before yes. uh, God created the word before Mashiach. So Mashiach was basically before the word. Correct. So the it was together with them, but only. But God was only one. Let me, give you,
0: let me give you an example. When you want to build a house,
1: right. how do you build a house? You do you
0: think, of, you think of the wood or do you think of the finished project?
1: project?
0: You have an idea. You draw a picture of what your end goal wants to look like. Right. When God created the world, he had Mashiach on his mind. Let's put it, I'm just putting it in very physical, metaphoric ways. He had his goal of what he wanted to look like as Mashiach. He created a, Mashiach in mind. Now he had to be able to make the steps to get there. And that's the world that we're living in, is those steps. <coughs> You follow?
1: All of them. All the whole
0: world. Yeah, we're at the end of the chain. Right. But starting from the beginning of creation all the way until we are today is God going about his construction plan. And we are the workers, the contractors that are making God's home and building this beautiful home that he envisioned on the day of creation.
1: Well, to start. The
0: end, the Every person, the, the way the Medrash puts it, when you build something, when you want to make something, you don't envision the two by four you envision the complete home. You envision the end product. Saif meiseh, in Hebrew, there's a saying, Seif meiseh machshav etchila. Yes, your end action is your first thought. That means what I have first in my mind is what I want it to look like. I have an image of how I want my house to look like. Then I'm going to go to an engineer, a carpenter, a contractor, an architect, to be able to get those steps there. God also... His end idea was the coming of Mashiach. That was the purpose of creation. He created the world for the coming of Mashiach. Now he's getting us as the architects, engineers, contractors to be able to get us to that stage.
1: So we are part of the process.
0: Not only that, we are partners in the process. And how we learn about next What's
1: week. What's the industrial
0: revolution? I'll tell you after a you What is
1: it? What's the industrial, industrial revolution? revolution? Mm-hmm. This is people went sewing with needles. And needles Look, and we fix to to the they thing that we don't get, get uh, cut off.
0: Yes, and thank you, I thank you, Ayal, for helping us being a wired connection with God. Right? We should all, you know, the story about just talking about wired and wireless. There was once the Israeli prime minister and the president of the United States when wireless phones came out. They were talking about them when wired phones came out, I should say. And the Israeli uh, prime minister was in the Oval Office, and the prime and the and the fellow tells him, the president tells him, "Look what I got here. This phone." I've, Dial a number, I can call anywhere in the world. I just has to be connected to this wire right here. He says, Oh wow, that's beautiful. Can I make a phone call? He makes a phone call. Great. The next time the president comes to Israel, he takes them around and he shows them and he says, What are you uh, he shows them his phone. He says, Look, we got wireless here. <laughs> you see by the Holy Temple, it was wireless. So today we're wired and therefore we had very good connections. Good to see everybody. Same time, same place next week. We look forward to seeing you. The following week, there's going to be a little break because of Shavuos, so we're not going to have the class on Zoom or the JLI class, but we will be celebrating Shavuos in synagogue, and God willing, everybody will be here to join us to get the Ten Commandments again for the 3,334th time. God bless you. Have a good week. Good night. Lee, you want to say hi to your grandchildren? (laughs) (laughs) No reception. They don't see him. One second, hold on. How do you make a big schwum? All right. Hold on, huh? Have a good week, everybody. Do you see them?
1: Yeah. Hi.
0: Hi. 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 There's one. Come
1: on, hang up. so much joy in there. Up. So. Yeah. Hang yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs>